Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. We are now stepping into Genesis chapter 12. So uh, for those of you that are keeping score, that means we have completed the first 11 chapters. Genesis 12 is seen as one of the most important, if not the most important transition in the entire Old Testament. Because from what happens in Genesis 12, the rest of the Old Testament unfolds how God is working this out, and then the New Testament carries it forward, which we'll talk about towards the end. But just as a quick reminder to where we are, let's remember where Genesis 11 left off. We're just going to do this a real quick flyover. So God had rendered judgment on man once again at the beginning of Genesis 11 because they, mankind rejected God again. And so God came down, and instead of wiping out mankind like he did in the flood, instead he came down and confused the language of man, dispersing, them, dispersing us throughout the earth. Then after this moment in Babel, we read another genealogy. Genealogies are really important in the book of Genesis. And so we read another genealogy of Noah, more specifically Noah's son Shem. From this line of Shem came a man named Abram. Abram, we learn, was married to a woman named Sarai, who, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, says that Sarai was barren, unable to have children of her own. And we talked about what an interesting line this is, because if we remember all the genealogies up to this point, and really, a lot of the genealogies we'll read afterwards, it's like multiplication is going on everywhere. But yet, in the middle of it, there's this, there's this woman and she's barren. And what we learn about Abraham or Abram and Sarai is they're living in a town called Haran with Abram's dad, Terah. So Abram, Sarai, living in a town called Haran with, their, with Abram's dad. This family, before living in the town of Haran, lived in what is known as the city of Ur in Mesopotamia. Ur was a very prosperous city, and it was the center of pagan worship of this moon god named Naaman, or N-A-A-M-A-N. Not sure how that is pronounced. Ur even contained within it a pit of human sacrifice. So we're told in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, that this family with Abraham's dad at the head moved this family from Ur with the intent of heading to the land of Canaan, which is present-day Israel. However, this journey just stops, we read in Genesis 11. And they end up in this city of Haran. But like Ur, here's what's interesting. Haran was also a place of worship for the same moon god that was worshipped in Ur. So putting this all together gives us Abram and Sarai. They're unable to have children, And they're living in a land of pagan moon worshipers. And it's possible were themselves worshiping pagans, living in Haran. But something massive happens. 
So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen. And let's read what happens. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram And Abram took, his, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So here's what's happening in this moment. Redemptive history is taking a giant step forward in this passage. Now, now we need to ask, what is redemptive history? I'm glad you asked. I just happen to have this prepared. Redemptive history is the comprehensive acts of God to redeem a people and all creation back to himself. Redemptive history is the comprehensive, means all the things that God is doing to redeem a people and all of creation back to himself. So that, that everything is restored back to its original design and purpose. Good, whole, and for the glory of God. With his people living in his place under God's loving care and rule. Now we got to remember, we can never forget this. Way back in Genesis 3, we read about how sin has destroyed everything. It broke the relationship that mankind had with God. It broke the relationship that we had with each other. It broke our relationship between us and the earth. Sin also brought a curse. And that curse is most clearly seen in physical death. This destruction and death has come to us all. It is the primary disease that has been passed from our first parents, Adam and Eve. This is why God says in Genesis 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 21, that man's, mankind's heart is inclined toward evil from our youth. And God is good. He is just. And as a good and just God, he cannot merely look away from evil he cannot merely look away from it and the effects that it has brought. That is not a good God. It is not a good God that takes what is broken, what he loves, and sweep it under the rug as if nothing happened. 
He's got to do something about it. He must act. And redemptive history is how he acts to bring both judgment for sin and salvation from it. Judgment from sin, or judgment of sin and salvation from it. And so, in this passage, redemptive history takes this huge step, and it begins with God's call. Look at what verse 1 says. It says, the Lord said to Abram. Now we go back to our observation of the text. Look at how the word Lord is. It's all capital letters, right? It means we've got to pay attention to something. This is God's personal covenantal name that he gives to his people. This is Yahweh coming to Abram. God's covenantal name is used here. Not the generic name for God, but Yahweh, meaning something personal is happening. It is the beginning of a covenant between God and Abram that will function in the middle of this personal relationship, which Abram is invited into. The specificity of this covenant right now is not going to be clear until later on in his life. But we cannot lose the fact that God, the maker of heaven and earth, from which now creation and mankind has been broken away from, God on his own initiative has stepped in and made himself known to a man named Abram. God is personally coming to him. Notice how God is the initiator and not the other way around. It is very likely Abram is a pagan moon worshiper, does not know anything about Yahweh, does not know anything about, he thinks the moon made everything. But now the maker of the moon comes to him. Independent of Abraham, of Abram, independent of what he's done and where he is in life, simply by God's kingly choice. God's call came. This call required Abram's complete trust by forsaking all he knows, all of his security, his religion, his nation, his people, his very own family, except he brings his wife and his nephew and and his personal household to follow God's call into an unknown future. Like, don't miss this. Let's not, let's not just moralize this. God comes to him and says, leave everything and trust that I'm going to bring you somewhere. Ligonier.org, in an article entitled The Call of Abram, says this. I think this is a great quote. We should not underestimate the gravity of the decision Abram had to make when God first called him. Abram had to leave everything that he knew, a home where prosperity and sustenance were taken for granted, and go to an unknown land where he would have to trust in the providence of the Lord and not his own plans or family ties. Providence is simply this. It is God moving all things where he intends it to go. This is a monumental thing. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 says this, by faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And so we see the nature of God's call. 
It is one that is first initiated by God. Two, it is personal. And three, it required complete trust. God himself had come and spoken to Abram, making himself known. However, the future to which Abram was called to step into was still unknown, leaving a whole lot of room for fear and doubt. If, Abr- if I was Abram, I'd be like, okay, great, that sounds awesome. Where are we going? What can I bring? Can I get an idea of what the next step? Just, I, I got some questions first. That's not what's happening here. That's not what God is requiring of this call. But God's call was tethered to God's promise. A magnificent promise. See, God's call is never void. It is never meant to be in a vacuum as if he's playing some kind of game. God is good. We can never, ever, ever forget that. God is good. And in him there is no darkness. And we see his goodness in the fact that he initiates this call and he continues by giving an amazing promise that is attached to this call. So let's take a deeper look at this promise. God says, go to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. First, it's important to understand the richness of this promise. The covenant revealed to Abram in later chapters, it all finds its root here. Its promise is tied to land. It's tied to the establishment of a new nation. It is a promise of blessing and cursing and of a global mission. Abram is called to leave his land because God's going to give him and his descendants a new land, which we learn in verse 7 will be this land called Canaan. See, land is necessary for God's promise because, remember, God is perfectly consistent and he will not abandon his plan for creation. God's desire is for the earth to be his unique dwelling place. He established Eden to be that from the very beginning. Adam and Eve were to expand that dwelling place throughout the earth. However, because of sin, Eden was closed off to Adam and Eve. The dwelling place of God on earth needs to be reestablished through a process of redemption and restoration. This is the beginning of that. A promise to give Abram land. See, we've got to get this notion out of our mind that when we go to heaven, we're going to be these like ethereal, first of all, people don't become angels. Like, we don't become angels. That, that, that is not biblical. Number two, we're not going to sit on a cloud with these disenfranchised bodies plucking golden harps, singing songs that most of you don't even like anyway. That's not going to be heaven. We're told that, that the eternal heaven will be in a new earth, in a new heavens and a new earth, that we will have bodies, right? This is a part of God planting a seed to go, I'm going to do something later. It's tethered to something physical and real. However, just as God created Adam and Eve to live in a garden, within the context of a special relationship, God's promise to make a great nation for Abram that will live in that land. There is a hint of royalty in the way the Hebrew is written here with the word great. 
Meaning, this is no ordinary nation. It is something that, that it's a nation that will be made ex- just by God himself, specifically for God. It will stand out among all the other nations as God's precious people. So you remember, Genesis chapter 10, we read all about these nations that come from Abraham's descendants. All of these nations, all of these nations. Shem and his line are listed among all the nations as just one among many. These names represent people and nations, and this chapter shows that they all derive from the same source. Shem's line, just one among many, not inherently unique or special until now. God has called Abram out from all of these nations, from the line of Shem, and he's going to form a new one, a great one that uniquely belongs to God in this promise relationship where they will be his people dwelling in his land. This new nation will be blessed to be a blessing to the world around them, showing the curse brought on by sin, God is reversing it. This blessing is not the general providence of God governing all things. It will be for those specifically who belong to this nation. It reaches back to Genesis 1 after God created male and female in his image. The very first thing it says God did in Genesis 1.28 is he blessed them. Special relationship of his divine approval showing that they will be prosperous, fulfilling their purpose in God's kingdom. And this great nation will be given land, it will be given divine approval, and it will be prosperous. God's promise to make Abram's name great It's interesting to put this promise over and against what occurred in chapter 11 with Babel. Those in Babel wanted to make their name great. They wanted to, to, on their own, apart from God, to be great based off of their own accomplishments, but instead they found only shame. However, we see greatness is granted by God. It is not ultimately granted by man. At his declaration... The word for greatness here is different from the word great that was used in in Genesis 11. This one means you'll be honored and you will be exalted and you will truly be remembered, Abram. And it will be good and you will have no shame. Babel ended in shame. You belong to me. There is no shame for you, Abram. God also promises he's going to protect this people It will be extremely important how others will relate to this nation and to Abram. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. I am your defender. I am your provider. I am your maker. I am the God who will honor you. I am the God who will lift you up. He's called to leave the protection of his family and his people and his country and all the security that's found there. Can you imagine how weighty this promise must have been for Abram to leave all that he knew to embrace all that he didn't know? And it all rests on the one who came to him. So far, we've seen God's promise to Abram, land, a great nation, a great name, and protection, all for a purpose, and we must not miss the purpose At the end of verse 3, God concludes the promise by saying, And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. 
See, God's intention of establishing a relationship with Abram, calling him out from the nations to create a new one, is for the benefit of all the nations they've been called out from. Remember, Genesis 9, Noah blesses uh, his sons Japheth and Shem, and Noah says, may God enlarge Japheth and dwell in the tents of Shem, meaning that there's going to be something that's going to happen in Shem's line that's going to provide something for all the earth. God's promise to Abram is in keeping with his word. It is in keeping with his plan for creation and mankind, which he established in Genesis 1 and 2. See, we got to remember, what God is doing is he's not trying to improve upon what he did in Genesis 1 and 2. He's bringing us back to what he established in Genesis 1 and 2. See, God never changes his mind on how to accomplish his narrative or his redemptive plan. He is perfectly progressing it according to his wisdom, and he executed it exactly as he willed, exactly what he determined long ago. This passage is showing, showing us that throughout redemptive history, God's eyes have always been on the nations. It has always been on the nations. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote this, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, guys, there's this theological viewpoint that I wholeheartedly disagree with, and it's that God has one plan for Israel and one plan for everybody else. No, God has had one plan, and it is through Israel to redeem his people. It's not one and then the other. It is through this people that I'm making, one will come that will redeem all of my people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. There's not two redemptive plans. There's been one redemptive plan from the beginning. The promise that God gives here gave Abram insight into his plan to create one nation that will consist of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Paul tells us in Galatians that God preached this to Abram and throughout the rest of Genesis, the rest of the, Old, uh, of the New Testament, up to our present day, God is still fulfilling this promise. I remember being at a conference a number of years back and one of the speakers talking about when this great work of God is done at the end of time and everyone who belongs to God that was called out from the nations is standing before the throne and it's people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, Jew and Gentile sitting before the throne of God in the new heavens and the new earth, God will turn to Abraham and go, see, I did it. What I told you I would do There it is. It is done. Stop and think about this for a moment. This sounds crazy. (laughs) This sounds bananas. God called a pagan to leave everything, promising to give him a land that is already established by others. People are already living there. It's like me going up to your house and God going, I'm going to give you the Larson house. (laughs) You're like, no, you're not. Not for a good sum of money, right? (laughs) And yet, God also tells him that I'm going to create a royal nation for you that will be for the benefit of everybody. And Abraham's wife is barren. 
They've had decades of not being able to have a child. They're in their 70s. We learn they're 75 years old. These are just two older people living their life like everyone else. God didn't call a king that was already established in power. He didn't call a couple who had dozens and dozens of children. Hey, they're, they're being fruitful. Let's call them. No, he called a barren couple with no or very little influence outside of their immediate world. This isn't one that any of us would have chosen. As a matter of fact, the New Testament book of Romans says that Abram and Sarah were as good as dead they were so old. That's not a statement of you in your 70s. That's what the Bible says. Don't hate me. Hate. I mean, but honestly, how many of you in your 70s are like, hey, you're pregnant? I can't handle that in my 40s. Good luck. Some of you will get that. Baby coming in their 40s. All throughout the Bible, we see the concept of what is called the great reversal. This is a powerful biblical concept. God will use the weak. God uses the old. God uses the small. He uses the barren. And he uses the poor for his glory and to accomplish his work. He will use what many would call foolish in order to confound us in our own self-perceived wisdom. So that the only plausible explanation for the redemptive events which transpire is, that has to be God. Because man wouldn't come up with that. But God's call and his promise require a response. As crazy as this may all sound, we see Abram's response in verses 4 through 6. He just takes God at his word, and without pre-qualification, without protest, without bargaining, he packs up and he goes. At 75 years old, Abram went with the Lord, went just as the Lord told him. He trusted God, demonstrating his faith through his actions and obedience to God to God's promise not knowing where he was going, and not knowing how any of it was going to take place. Ponder that for a moment. He left everything. All he had was a call and a promise. He didn't have even a baby at that point. He didn't have a land at that point. His faith led him to walk obediently. It was a faith that we'll read in Genesis 15, which called God to count him as righteous. And so he went to the land of Canaan. And when Abram and Sarai and all who traveled with them arrived at Shechem, meaning they probably decided to camp there for a night, God appeared to him again. And he says, this land that you're camping in, this is what I'm going to give to you and your people. This is what I'm going to do. Now, don't let the simplicity of this phrase miss the depth of its meaning, that God condescends to, to Abram. Before, he just came to him in word, but now God appears to Abram. See, he spoke to Cain. He spoke to Noah. Now he appears to Abram. He communes with God unlike anyone else in the world. The God of the universe graciously condescended to the man he called, establishing a pattern for the other patriarchs who will meet God as well. And when this appearance come, comes, he gives clarification. Remember that land I told you about? It's going to be this. This will belong to your people. This revelation 
invokes a response of worship, and Abram builds two altars, one outside Shechem and one between Bethel and Ai. These altars, we're going to see these built all through Genesis by not just Abram, but also other patriarchs. And what these are, these altars, they're signs of God's presence with his people. They're like planting a flag that we worship God alone in this land. See, God has begun to reestablish Eden on earth and people with a people that uniquely belong to him. And from Abram and his barren wife, the nation of Israel will be born. God does give the land to Israel. They do bless nations for a time. However, like Adam and Eve, and, and the, the nation of Israel will continually fall into sin and rebellion. It will lead to exile from the land. It will lead to tragedy over and over. Just read First and Second Kings. It's a downward spiral of tragedy. Read Judges. It's a downward spiral of tragedy. Because this, even this, doesn't fix the human heart. It is still inclined towards evil. However, from the nation of Israel, God's total salvation will come. A man named Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of a virgin. And he will be born to take away the sin of the world. He never sinned. He never disobeyed. He was pure and he was good. He lived the life that Abram, Israel, the nations, you and I have failed to live. And he gave his life his, and, and shed his blood on a cross, dying the death he didn't deserve and sacrificing the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of his people. In Christ, sin is dealt with once and for all. The human heart can be made new. Christ comes from Israel and brings good news of great joy for all people. And in Christ, all the nations of the earth are blessed because of him. God himself brings together Jews and Gentiles. He creates one new people, as the book of Ephesians says. One people belonging to God who will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth from all over the world. And when God gives his promise to Abram, this is what he has in mind. Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. He is the king of kings who brings royalty to his people. He is the blessing. He is their protection. And he is his message. And, and his message goes to all nations. And they are blessed as men, women, and children put their faith in him. This is why our mission statement is to give every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to respond to this message. See, God is still redeeming a people to himself through Christ. I gotta be honest. When, when we talk about like we're waiting for the temple to be rebuilt in Israel, that's actually not a biblical concept. You know what the temple that's being rebuilt now that are waiting to be done is? It's the church. It's his people. We are the temple of God. We're not waiting for another physical structure to be built in Jerusalem. We're waiting for God to finish building his church and we're told when the last person comes, then the end will come. Who wait for the day when God will, and that, that will be the day when God brings redemptive history to a close. A people who responded to the call and promise of the gospel by faithful obedience so that they too can be blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. And so let's close with this. As we've seen, we have God's call and we have God's promise. Rooted in Genesis 12 is God's call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Have you heard God's call to believe in Jesus for your salvation? 
The call is the same to us as it was to Abram with even more clarity. Forsake all and cling to Jesus, who in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the pearl of great value. He is the significance, glory, and worth we are all seeking for. He is the one that begins to set for us a steady anchor from which we live the rest of our lives. Have you honestly responded to the call of God in Christ Jesus to save you and make you new and to be the God that you follow no matter what happens in the world around you. Rooted in Genesis 12 is God's promise that all who believe and respond to this call are given the right to be his child, to be his people, forgiven of your sin, restored back to a relationship with God and, no, and, one, and one and other people, and you get to live in the certain hope that the most frightening thing that, that could befall us, which is death, has lost its sting. And you will see God face to face one day. Oh, what a promise. Does the weight of God's promise compel you? Even though you may not have all the answers. But you know the one who does and who will bring all history to a close. And finally, we see God's response. And it's that we demonstrate our faith through obedience to his call. That we give up our lives and follow Jesus like Abram does here. And so it would befall me to not ask you, what is your response? See, I think that sometimes we can think that faith is just this, this thing we put on the shelf of our life. And maybe we'll call on it every once in a while, or it's just a mental assent to an, I agree with these statements, but I live the rest of my life how I want. That's actually not biblical faith. Jesus is not saying, believe in an idea. He's saying, believe in me and follow me. Lay down your life so that you can actually find life. And our faith is what makes us right before God, and our faith is to be lived out in newness of life. That, yes, causes us to live differently from the world around us. That, yes, will make us uncomfortable from time to time. That, yes, will make us feel sometimes that we're alone in a full room. But that is not because the promise and the call are, are, are malfunctioning. It's because we live in a malfunctioning world that doesn't see that what God intended was actually right. What does your faithful response to God's call and promise look like? Oh, I hope that you're just not a Christian in name only. Our culture is filled with those. We need Christ followers that live by a different ethic, live for a different kingdom, that have anchored for their souls a better promise with the hope of a true eternal life. Oh, May we see what God's doing in history, and may we live our history in light of that. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. 
God, I am so thankful that your call comes to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. That, God, you do not come to those who you feel deserve it or have earned it, but you come to us while we are yet sinners. And you offer mercy and you offer grace and you offer a savior and you offer a life and you offer promises that carry an eternal weight of glory with them. And that these promises are not fanciful wishes, but these are actual promises that, that, that in many ways are already fulfilled. They are certain. And oh God, may every day of our lives be lived in faith and obedience so that we would know you and knowing you and your son Jesus Christ is eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.